Hi, um, this is Angie Hambrick. I'm the Assistant Vice President of Diversity, Justice, and Sustainability. And today I'm really excited to do the first of a series of podcasts with different alumni from the Diversity Center. The Diversity Center Alumni Network is a group of alumni who have some sort of connection to the Diversity Center. So either folks were a part of the Diversity Center when they were students or If they weren't students um, when the Diversity Center were were formed, they still have this connection to the mission and values of the Diversity Center, which include perspective-taking, critical reflection, diversity, inclusion, equity, and thinking about the lives of minoritized people. So um, when we say D-Center alums, it encompasses a large spectrum of alums um, that have come through PLU. So what we wanted to do was to make sure that we centered the voices of our alumni, of D-Center alumni, and what better way to do that than to start with having a conversation about the Common Reading Book. Um, The Common Reading Program began in 2007, and it was a collaboration between Student Involvement and Leadership, which is now the Office of Student Engagement and the Diversity Center. And those two offices came together to offer a common experience for entering first-year students to read a text together to understand what does it mean to be a college student? What does it mean to read a text using a college student lens as they're transitioning from high school to college? Throughout the years, the Common Reading Program has moved to an all-campus read, meaning that all first-year students, faculty, and staff are encouraged to read the text. And the Diversity Center has remained a partner in that program and really working to ensure that texts that center the voices of minoritized populations, of people of color, of queer folk, are at the center of those stories and of those texts. And this intentionality of thinking about the common reading book is very much rooted in our Lutheran heritage and the mission of Pacific Lutheran University. So for the past two years, the common reading book has been Between the World and Me by ta Coates. So I have with me decent alumni um, who are going to have a conversation with me about some of the themes that have risen to the top um, for us around this text. This text is so rich that it's really hard to kind of narrow down or one or two things to talk about. We can talk about this text for hours. And so we hope in the next, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes, however long y'all going to be listening to us, that you're able to take some pieces of the text and really see them from our our lenses and and really go back and and read the, the text, which is so rich. So... Today, I am joined by Nicole Jordan. Say hey, Nicole. Hey. Nicole is a 2015 graduate of PLU. Um, Right now, she is an educational specialist serving youth in foster care in the Bethel School District. Shout out, Nicole. What's up? Hey. (laughs) Um, We also have Maurice Eckstein. Oh, Maurice Eckstein. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it matters. You know what? Names matter. It does. But I mean, I'm the only person with that name typically in the room where I am. So if you pronounce it either way, I know you're talking to me. But I've known you for like, it feels like 20 years. Even though he graduated in 2011, mm-hmm. we've known each other for a long time. So I apologize. I know your name. It's okay. Um, it's not. 
but it is. <laughs> uh, Maurice works with the Human Rights Campaign as a in a team of folks um, engaged in volunteer learning and leadership development. So, hey, Maurice. Hey. Hey. So, we're going to start our conversation on the first page of the text. So, if you have your text... Feel free <laughs> to join Turn us. your Bibles. <laughs> <laughs> if you have it in your hand, turn to. <laughs> but that just says so much about the text that you can start this conversation on page one, pretty much sentence one. So that's where we're going to start. So um, the first sentence says, son, last Sunday, the host of a popular news show asked me what it meant to lose my body. And throughout the text, Coates is very intentional of saying body, not necessarily saying myself or um, me, but he is very intentional. He says over and over, my body, my body, my body. Um, why do y'all think that he chose that language to describe himself and describe to describe other people of color? I think at first it it grounds you in the human experience and it also orients you into his perspective about who we are as people, because he doesn't, and you'll find out later, spoiler, <laughs> he doesn't have a religious identity. He really just believes in us being here and we we live in our bodies. We live our experience uniquely. Uh, we're, we are part of groups, but we are our own individual selves. And so saying body is just so singular. It just brings you back to the individual. It brings you back to your physical self. And mm-hmm. I think that that's really important to him. I think it I mean that I totally agree with that and I think what it also suggests is how very basic he wants you to understand this concept as he's mm. taking you through this conversation. Mm. It is really about um self-agency, self-determination, right? The ability to to move about, to achieve, to live, to function as a citizen but at its very core your body, your individualness. And so that's where I go to. Yeah. Mm. Also, you know, I, I think a lot about it too. And I think about how bodies are fragile mm. and bodies have bones that break and yeah. um, things, you know, things can happen to yourself. But when you say that there's something wrong with my body, that um, there's something like physically wrong and, and your body is so soft and fragile and something that you kind of almost like your temple. Like yeah. this is like where you live mm-hmm. and who you are and, and how you survive in a world that mm-hmm. I wonder if he's also thinking about the the, the fragility. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the fragileness mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> of bodies and especially of, of black bodies, which is kind of the focus of the text. And he goes right into that talking about how um, bodies to be lost in so when you're talking about your body being a temple and then you're talking about your body being lost you're talking about how fragile it is and also because everyone has a body and everyone knows what it means to feel pain physically and while we don't always understand people's different perspectives of whatever shoes or identities they hold we understand what it means to be cut physically and so i think that there's that shared experience in that and that saying body allows us to to take part in yeah. Mm-hmm. It immediately brings everybody into, okay, we all understand what it means to mm-hmm. be in our bodies. Mm-hmm. And for him, you know, as a as a self-described atheist in the book, he describes that he doesn't have a concept of a God per mm-hmm. se that he prays to, but he recognizes 
skin, our mm -hmm. our physical skin as as the spirit. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the ability mm -hmm. to feel and and so understanding that, I think that it is a level of 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 the of spirituality for him, right? Mm -hmm. The the body, the singular person that you're in, that is his level of spirituality. May may I just say. Um, on page 12, he says, um, how do I live free in this bike body? And so for me, that creates almost an, another imagery. So we talked about kind of how a body is fragile. We talked about how everyone can relate to having a body. So it makes it can make black folks seem like, you know, we're human too, mm -hmm. folks, and we deserve um, humanity. Mm -hmm. But it also can create this Im imagery of our bodies are almost like prison that we can't escape our bodies and what is done to our bodies mm -hmm. and having the agency to be able to kind of control what happens to our bodies. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. It does. I remember years ago, I went to um, the United States Conference on AIDS and Melissa Harris Perry was there making a keynote and she was talking about... Uh, we were talking about the HIV and AIDS struggle and what that looks like, but she really brought it down to, you know, this is a social justice issue and all of our issues are social justice issues. And if we don't recognize that, but in order to jump off her point, she talked about what does it mean to be a problem mm -hmm. to society, to wow. the global order of things. And um, that kind of makes me think about what does it mean in terms of, are you able to live free in this black body? Are you mm -hmm. able to achieve that level of um, existence and not be seen as a problem, not be always seen as the first um, suspect or um, not be seen as the, the primary target of insults for the sake of your skin and nothing else? Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be a problem? So I think like that kind of that kind of stuck with me as you mentioned that line. Um, but I also feel like we see throughout the book as he's discussing the body, um, there's a, there's a need for really a, this entire book for me is about like self-awareness, right? You just being self-aware as self-aware as a black body in this world and how you have to maneuver that. Mm -hmm. So, connected to Coates's understanding um, and thinking about the body is the concept of the dream, big D and and little D. And on page at the we bottom, we want to giggle. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe the, <laughs> okay. The dream. Mm -hmm. Um, at the bottom of page ten is when we. Us as a group, when we started to really think about Coates in the dream, when he says, um, when the journalist asked me about my body, it was like she was asking me to awaken, awaken her from the most gorgeous dream. And so let's talk about the dream. Yeah. Like the body. <laughs> Coates talks about the dream and he talks about it with a capital letter D. Big, big dream. And so what is what is the dream in in Coates's view? I believe he understands the dream as the pursuit of happiness, but in a really specific way, in a way that is um, unforgiving and, and blind to struggle, in a way that is selfish almost. Because I don't think you can 
have a dream and pursue that relentlessly and be aware and participate. Like, because the very next thing he says is, I've seen that dream all my life. It is perfect houses with nice lawns. It is Memorial Day cookouts, block associations, and driveways. The dream is tree houses and club scouts. The dream smells like peppermint, but tastes like strawberry shortcake. And for so long, I've wanted to accept the, into the dream to fold my country over my head like a blanket, but has never been an option because the dream rests on our backs. The dream bedding made from our bodies. We as black people in our bodies can't participate in the dream without sacrificing our bodies. And I think that's the idea that he keeps coming back to. As an immigrant, for me, you know, the dream is couched in a larger idea of of the world, right? I think that the dream is is about privilege, mm-hmm. um, about understanding some privilege, you know, with regards to the sanctity and coziness um, the, of the ideal American life. And I have to be careful about how I, I, I talk about this because I'm not an immigrant because of, of horrible circumstances like war-torn, mm. you know, areas mm. or, or poverty and just sort of, or some sort of refugee status for whatever reason. I mean, I chose to move here. And so my idea of this, this dream that he's talking about, I would think, uh, I would think about that idealistic like American life. I remember as a as a kid watching Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. <laughs> and or, or not even Home Alone 2, Home Alone 1, where it was something simple as I don't understand like this house is just huge for no right. for no ass reason. <laughs> no reason. Can I say that? I don't know. Well, you said um, it. Keep going. <laughs> uh for no reason and 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 you have to understand also growing up in the Caribbean as a kid who was like probably nine, ten. So mm-hmm. being aware of the world for the first time, paying attention to American culture was very central to where we got our entertainment from. So to watch Home Alone and be like, he has a lot of bedding on his bed. Like mm. just something as simple as that was just a part of this dream in terms of there's a level of excess, right? Mm. Uh, and uh, like a, just a, a, an idea of excess. Mm-hmm. Um, that is what the idea of just living in America was. Um, I, a friend of mine, we talk about how we didn't know that we were necessarily poor until we actually moved here. Mm. Um, and what does it mean to live now as an immigrant with a complete clean slate, um, no generational access to, to land or, mm. or inheritance or anything like mm. that? But coming here for the first time and having to sort of build from nothing mm-hmm. um, a life here, that's what the dream is to me. <laughs> like that's, that, that's, that, is, that is an idea. I think it's the idea of... To have land? Not just land, but I, you know, and I, I research other things to kind of um, figure out how do I make sense of it. But mm-hmm. I was reading from uh, this book called On Democracy by Robert Dahl, and he wrote it in, in 1998. But... Um, the idea of democracy sort of like came about with regards to the idea of this dream. And he defines democracy as avoiding tyranny, essential rights, general freedom, self-determination, moral autonomy, human development, protecting essential personal interests, political equality. And then uh, from modern ideas of democracy, he also adds peace seeking and Mm -hmm. prosperity. 
And so when he kind of put to language as to this this ideal mm-hmm. of that dream and the ideal of democracy and how that that just kind of spoke to me in in both of those things. Yes. Yes. Period. <laughs> I I was struck by you connecting the dream to a US American movie movie. And so when I think of the dream, I think of access to whiteness. Hmm. And so the movie that came to my mind when I was thinking about that was Imitation of Life. Mm-hmm. Um, where this have you ever seen Imitation of Life, Mm-mm. Nicole? Girl. Is it on the list? I mean it needs to be <laughs> on the list. <laughs> With the Mahalia Jackson song at the end. Oh girl, yes. It's about um <laughs> basically it's about um, these two women, one black and one white, and the black woman works for the white woman as her maid, and mm-hmm. the black woman has a daughter who is so fair-skinned that she can pass for white. Mm-hmm. And she she does. And in doing that, and, and in her pursuit of trying to access whiteness, she in turn, what, you know, what Coates is talking about, the body, she forsake her body. She gave up her body, her black body, in order to be, in order to gain proximity mm. to whiteness and all that whiteness gave her. Mm-hmm. And in turn, giving up her body meant that she also gave up her mama's body. Yeah. And she didn't want to be recognized by her mama. You know, it could be a true story. I'm sure there are stories in mm. our history of, of passing and that sort of thing that this could have uh, pulled from. And and at the end of the movie, she the her mother passes away and they hadn't mm. seen each other in all these years. And it's this this heart wrenching realization that uh, that she has that I gave up my mother mm. so that I could have this access to white folks and whiteness, I guess. Um, yeah. And what that did to my mother and her heart. And so I think about. I think a lot about whiteness when mm-hmm. I think about the dream. I think a lot about um, what whiteness gives not only white people, but those who choose to um, try to access whiteness in different mm. ways, either by, you know, code switching or kind of changing who we are in order to 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 have that power and that privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, and how when we do that, when we want that access, how we give up our bodies and how we give up ourselves. And Coates doesn't believe in whiteness. I know he doesn't. <laughs> he says people who believe they are white. Absolutely. <laughs> what does that mean? And do they have a body in the same ways that we have bodies? If there is no such thing as whiteness, then why did they get the dream? I, you know, I have a question. I have a question in terms of does he does he not believe in whiteness? Because mm-hmm. I don't know if he said that necessarily, but he did refer to those people who believe they are white. Um, so talking about it, I think, is some acknowledgement of of the concept. Mm-hmm. For me, it's like, is what what is missing and what is a big part of the conversation is what does it what does it mean to to be white? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to inherit being white? Um, and what is the responsibility there um, for those who are white or perceive themselves to be white or believe themselves to be white? Right? Well, he talks about people who have immigrated to this country with a fairer skin and they sacrifice their heritage to participate in whiteness. So mm-hmm. perhaps mm-hmm. they, too, are sacrificing their body to to commit to this ideal, this idea into. I don't know. 
You know, I, I think of it, and I don't, I don't know how he thinks of it, but of course, whiteness is is this construction that changes and ebbs and flows depending on the cultural, political, social mm-hmm. context. And so I think he mentions one somewhere that, you know, white folks didn't always call themselves white. They called themselves Catholic or mm-hmm. Irish or Polish. But when they understood mm-hmm. that hue, H-U-E, the color of skin, can build a hierarchy of mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. and that hierarchy then creates power, then race is developed. And so when he says that, you know, race is a child of racism and not the father, that we had to figure out kind of like this hierarchy way and race was it, the color of our skin was it, in order for this ism and in order for the power structure to be created. I think I found the quote. But race is the child of racism, not the father. And the process of naming the people has never been a matter of genealogy and physiognomy. Mm-hmm. Physio- <laughs> <laughs> that is a word. <laughs> it's on page seven right. if y'all want to read along. You probably <laughs> can't pronounce the word either. <laughs> so much of as one hierarchy. Difference in hue and hair is old, but the belief in the preeminence of hue and hair, the notion that these factors can correctly organize a society and that they signify deeper attributes, which are... An, mm-hmm. I should have read this first. <laughs> You know, but the point is, he uses great words. This is a linguist. (laughs) This is a new idea at the heart of these new people who have been brought up hopelessly, tragically, deceitfully to believe they are white. So to participate in this whiteness is to be be deceited, is to be participating, to be hopeless. Is it? To participate in whiteness? Or... I need somebody white to answer that question. I don't, Can we make some movies here? <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that I was recognizing, and I was talking about like the Home Alone, because, and that's how I equated American, the idea of American with that movie, right? Sure. So think about that as a kid in the Caribbean and seeing their family, it was like a level of opulence that just seemed ordinary. You, you know. You it was everything. just. It was just. That was like a cultural. Uh, that was the. Um, that was the culture of America. I just saw a meme that said, um, "Atlanta is like Instagram in real life." Like <laughs> <laughs> everybody. And the reason why I said it because I just like I live in Atlanta now, and so there are people who just look good for the sake of looking good, mm. and then there's just crazy shit happening all the time. Um, but that is that level of. That level of things just look perfect, like it, in like America, right? Like it just looks like people follow all the rules, like everything is really spelled out in terms of like driving and and again Caribbean where rules you just you, <laughs> you drive, just... but I mean there are some suggested rules a lot more than they are. They're not even rules; they're just suggestions. <laughs> you get through, okay? You get just go, just go. Why are you not driving faster? <laughs> Um, anyway, no, but I, it, it was just it was just that sort of like, what is that that idea of luxury, that idea of just to be able to have things like I mentioned earlier, excess. Mm-hmm. and and America just felt like that. Like the first time I visited as a kid, I was like, why are the portions so big with mm-hmm. all the food? Like, you know, it, it was just, and I didn't recognize that outside of Trinidad and 
America, I didn't have another country to compare it to until right. like I actually visited Norway myself, mm-hmm. studying abroad when I was a student, and recognizing, okay, there is whiteness here, but they also practice some level of conservation. Discretion. There is a level of being aware of the larger world and mm. not necessarily consuming for the sake of consuming. And it comes down to even the smallest things as taking long showers. I remember being conditioned to take three-minute showers yeah. growing up because you were just always aware that there was a larger world outside mm. and we all have a, res- a sort of a responsibility mm-hmm. to do what we can, where we can, how we can. So it, it like it, even though it wasn't necessarily equated to whiteness or equated to equated to like a country's ideological framework, but it connects in my head to that dream of like waking her up from that dream because as an immigrant, this is the land of opportunity. This is the place where you can come mm-hmm. be anything, do anything if you work hard enough. Like that's that's the concept that you get and you buy into that dream with all the money that I spent for my immigrant paperwork in order to be here. Like, wow. so I, cause I also remember one, And this goes to a larger conversation as to (laughs) maneuvering and actually working here. One older woman who was an immigrant from Trinidad, she said to me one time, she's like, listen, don't let this country break you. Mm. You know, come here, do what you want to do, make that money and like, don't, don't let living here affect living which is which was very weird because i even have conversations with my mom sometimes and she's like oh my god you're doing that like such an american i'm like mom you chose we moved here Mm -hmm. so now i'm functioning here like don't call me out like that on something that i need to 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 actually actively actively practice in order to to so if you're going to be successful you have to adopt some ways that could Oh, yeah, that's, I mean, at a very basic level, that's why I even code switch Mm -hmm. in terms of going in and out of my accent, because even as my major was communications. And so in my mind, communicating effectively just means getting my message across quickly. I don't need to repeat some things to someone. So I'll just code switch when I'm talking to an American, talking an American accent. And that way I can communicate my message easier and we can move on with the conversation. Mm -hmm. Don't code switch. Talk. It's hard. Be here. And because why is that? I don't know. It's almost like a separate language for yeah. me. Like I switch in and out because there are some words that are Trinidadian that I would want to use if I speak with a Trinidadian accent. And then you'd be like, well, what? What word is that? And 10 of those words can come out in five minutes. And then we would get it would just be like a language lesson hmm. every so time I talk. Can't... I want to go ask you, Nicole, something that Maurice said about what the the woman from Trinidad said to him about losing himself and losing his body by being here in America. And you as um, a black American having grown up in Tacoma, how, what do you feel when you hear that about losing yourself, losing your body by being in this country? I feel like it's already true because it's kind of already happened. We, when I think about, well, it's hard because at one point you like you know where you're from. You mm-hmm. you're from Trinidad, mm-hmm. and I know that I'm from born and raised in Tacoma. My parents are from Florida, and we can't really go one more step beyond that. So we've already lost our body and our, and our sense of heritage and, and ancestry. And so, how can I possibly recover? Those are the questions that come to mind when when I hear "Don't lose your body." It's okay. My body is lost. How do I reclaim my body? How do I reclaim my spirit and um, my identity? 
within a culture that continuously oppresses me for choosing that. Because I can choose to keep degrading my body and keep selling it short or saying that it's worthless to participate and to be accepted. Or I can challenge that, but that resistance is exhausting. And that resistance makes it more difficult to participate in, you know, pursuing the dream and pursuing Mm -hmm. success and how we define that as a culture. One of the things that I think about with regards to opening up that statement that she made in terms of like losing your body and don't lose your body um, in in the Caribbean, and I think about this all the time, in the Caribbean, after slavery ended and after that whole period of indentureship and, and free labor and everything like that, the majority of the white owners or the white former plantation owners left the island. So the mm. entire island of mostly people of color grew up together outside of having to live next door to and exist next door to this um, class mm. of oppressors, mm-hmm. right? And former owners. And just to be able to walk outside your door and see generations of wealth mm-hmm. uh, and have to live next to that and be okay with being stuck in cycles of oppression mm-hmm. um, and cycles of, yeah, cycles of oppression, being stuck in cycles of oppression. Whereas, so for me, coming here it was like, don't have your black identity always be the thing that you compare against white identity. Mm-hmm. Don't, your existence should not be a, in a constant response to that. And the ability to even try to do that, like, is that is that possible? And and just function, yeah. right? Um, one of the things on page 124 that comes up for me was, and I made a note about so much of Black America's narrative is dependent on white America's narrative. Mm. Um, because at the bottom of page 24, he talks about, and I was sorry that I had never felt this particular loneliness before, that I had never felt myself so far outside of someone else's dream. And for me, that just sort of, he was talking about, of course, referring back to her dream, um, but something was going on at that point. And for the first time, he had never felt that his existence was directly impacted by just trying to live. But because my life or my body or my existence or my experience Hmm. is is sort of a threat to her dream or has always been a threat to her dream and the fact that my body is what that dream has been built upon. Okay, y'all, we got to take a short pause. If you like what you've heard so far, click the next link and join us for part two.